Good morning. Good morning. I think I told you guys a while back that I'm, I'm a word guy. I like words. I like figuring out what words mean, and uh, I especially like words that you find in the Bible. Um, but there's a word that's going to be the center of our focus today from the Bible, and I just I have to be honest with you, I, I've never really liked it. I've never really been comfortable with it. I'm going to teach on it this morning, and I'm going to work myself through it. I've got to work myself through it. Um, it's the word fellowship. I don't know what it is about that word fellowship. It just always never, it just never really kind of settles right in my mind and in my heart. I think it's because it's a really churchy word. We use it, I use it with church people. I use it in church circles, but I never use it outside of church. I wouldn't call up a friend and say, hey, you want to come over and have some fellowship with me today? It just doesn't, it doesn't feel quite right. And we use the word in so many different ways in a church, it's hard to understand what the word really means. Like I've heard this phrase from a church. We're all about um, food, fun, and fellowship. I know what food and fun is. I'm not sure what fellowship is. Um, we often just say, if it's a church social, we've done fellowship. I heard someone uh, not too long ago say that they had a, a hymn sing at their church. They got together and they sang hymns, and it was great fellowship. So maybe fellowship is singing hymns. Sometimes we'll name like a whole wing of our building after the word. This is our fellowship hall. If you want a fellowship, you've got to go in that room. That actually was my first encounter with the word fellowship. I was a brand new Christian, 18 years old. I started going to church, and we had a fellowship hall. It was down in the basement. After church, you went downstairs for fellowship, and I understood that fellowship meant you get a cup of coffee, and you say to the person across from you, how are you? Fine. And he says, how are you? Fine. And you'd sip your coffee, and you go to the next person and say, how was your week? Good. How was your week? Good. We had fellowship. Um, I should tell you on the side, though, it was a great experience because as a brand new believer in that church, I had just met Heidi. She and I were both talking. My grandmother came to church that day, who was a woman of faith. On the way home, she said to me, Richard, that, that young girl you were talking to, you're going to marry her. I, uh, I was a big fan of the Lord of the Rings books. I read them. I loved the movies when they came out. And one of the books is called Fellowship of the Ring. And the Fellowship of the Ring is a group of, of it's a mixed bag of dwarves and elves and, and hobbits. And they're, they're pulled together over a common task. It's to destroy this ring and, and vanquish evil. So then I thought fellowship means it's a group of diverse people coming together to accomplish a task. And the truth is, all of these things I've just said are parts of fellowship, but it's really important to understand the biblical meaning of fellowship. And there's a, the Greek word for fellowship I actually really like, and I'll tell you that in a minute. The reason uh, we're, we're going to spend so much time on fellowship is I think it's a non-negotiable. We're talking about what is church. Last week we read the passage that said the, the group we were looking at from the book of Acts, were devoted to the apostles' teaching. We said, that's a non-negotiable. We've got to have the word. We've got to have it taught and understood. We have to grow in the word. We have to listen to the word of God. And I made a pretty big point about our obedience being a critical factor as we learn the word. But it, the next phrase is, they were also devoted to the fellowship. So let's read it. We're going to read this every week, Acts 2, 42 to 47. It says, they, this group of um, thousands of brand new believers who were gathering together, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The first part of that says they were devoted to the fellowship. And then a good chunk of that passage describes what fellowship looks like. And the first thing it says in here is, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They came together every day. They came to church. That was their church. And they made a point of showing up. This is really important, and it's really powerful. I don't want you to ever underestimate the power of just showing up. You might think, well, what do I do? How can I help? What difference does it make if I'm here or not? It makes a difference. I have been to many church events, church services, uh, church efforts, church activities, where people didn't show up. And you're looking around saying, where is everybody? And it's really discouraging. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Maybe not even in church, some other outside activity. And you go to it, and people don't come, and you go, ah, where is everybody? The other side of that is you have a church event, you have a church social, a church service, a church activity, a church effort, and a lot of people show up. There's a feeling of excitement, a little bit of that awe that they're talking about there. I've, I've been in these conversations so many times. Hey, how did the blah, blah, blah event go the other day? It was great. So many people showed up. There's an excitement generated when you show up. Just show up. Just come here. Just sit in a seat. You don't have to do anything. Well, I'm going to make you do something. But the, the bottom line is, if you just show up, you have the potential and the power to bring encouragement to another person's life. Maybe someone will go home from here happy because you showed up. It's happened to me. I've come to church um, over the years, and I've not seen someone I was hoping to see at church, and I've gone home discouraged. Ah. Oh. So-and-so didn't show up. They weren't there today. And I feel it a little bit. Just a little glimpse of discouragement. But then when someone shows up and I wasn't thinking about it, it's like, oh, you're here. I don't use these words, but my heart is saying, you showed up. So just show up. That's what they did every day. Imagine the sense of awe that generated when every day they showed up at the temple and there were like a thousand people. And it really doesn't matter the numbers. I'm not saying we need big numbers just so we could be happy with numbers. Here's what I mean. I need you here. They need you here. At home, we need you here. We need you to show up because just showing up has incredible power to encourage other people. That was what they did every day they met in the temple courts. But let's get past that. We've got to push farther than just showing up. I mean, if you just show up, I'm going to be happy. But this isn't about just showing up. They did a lot more. If we could pull that uh, slide back up so we can see it again. It says, um, verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They had things in common. They were sharing something. They had a relationship. They didn't just show up, sit in the seats, and not talk to the person next to them and not talk to the person on the other side. And when church ended, they bolted out to the car so they wouldn't have to talk to anybody. They did more than that. They said they had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Now look at this. They broke bread in their homes. What? They got together in each other's homes outside of church? They ate together in each other's homes with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. This goes a lot deeper than just showing up, doesn't it? There's something going on here in this group. They were involved in each other's lives. They knew each other. They had things in common. They sat across the table and broke bread together. Next week, we're going to talk about breaking bread. Some of that refers to communion. Some of it is just sitting together over a meal and talking about life, about our triumphs and and challenges. It's about telling jokes and laughing together. It's about getting to know people to the point where you you can be a little bit vulnerable and say, hey, could you pray for me? Because here's something I'm really struggling with in my life. That's what's happening here. And there's a section of that that's amazing generosity. We're going to skip that today. That one is so important, it deserves its own Sunday. I'll warn you a week ahead of time so you, can, you know it's coming, but there's going to be a Sunday where I'm going to tell you to be generous and give, especially your money. I just want you to know it's coming. That was a part of what was happening here, but we're not talking about that today. What we're talking about is this concept that they gave to everyone. They sold possessions, they took the money, and they gave to everyone. What's the phrase there? As they had need. So here's the question that comes up in my mind. How did they know? How did they know people had needs? How did they know what the need was? How would you know that? It says it right here. I'm going to read it, and then we can take the slide down. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Okay, we can blank out the slide now, so I'll just talk about that a little bit. Maybe you're thinking, well... The church staff knows where the needs are. We give a little money to the church, and the church helps the people in need. That happens. That's important. That's a part of what church does, but that's not what's happening here. They knew about the need. How would you know about someone's need? If you're sitting way over there, how do you know what that person over there needs? If you're sitting up here, how do you know what those people in the back need? How do you know? You get to know each other. You break bread in each other's homes. You go out to the diner. You sit and have coffee over here in our coffee spot. You you come to prayer together. When you come to an adult Bible study class, you don't just sit in class and not look at the person next to you. You say, hey, uh, we should get together for coffee sometime and learn a little bit more about each other. That's how you find out what the needs are. That's what the Bible calls koinonia. That's the Greek word for fellowship. So that passage would read like this. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching to the koinonia. Koinonia means to have things in common. The Greek word means to share. It means to partner. It means to be in communion with each other. It means to carry each other's burdens. It means to support each other. That one word, koinonia, means all that. It means to support each other. It means to be unified, not unified, united together. It means to be involved in each other's lives. It means to know and be known. That's why I like the word koinonia a little bit better than fellowship. So I'm going to substitute it, and I'm going to try to say koinonia for the rest of my time up here instead of the word fellowship, because that Greek word carries so much meaning. It's the word that's used in the passage that we usually use when we're counseling people who want to get married. 
2 Corinthians 6.14 says that believers shouldn't marry unbelievers. That believers should marry believers. And it uses this phrase, don't be unequally yoked. Have you heard that phrase from the Bible? We're not an agricultural group generally, so some of us know what a yoke is, some of us don't. You might have, you might have seen one on a barn or someone has one hanging on their house. It's a heavy beam of wood with two curves on it. And those two curves rest over the shoulder of two oxen. They get strapped or buckled on. They get connected to a plow. And as the two oxen walk, it pulls the plow along. And the concept is, if you're going to put two oxen in a yoke, make sure they're matched so they can do the job. So this passage says, don't be unequally yoked. And then it goes on to use the word koinonia. It says, what koinonia does light have with darkness? Why would you partner up two things that mismatch, this says? Why would you share the load? Why would you do that together? Um, this koinonia, this fellowship, this partnership is all about a relationship. It's not just about the task. It's not just about how hard the oxen can pull. It's about the relationship they have together while they pull. That's what koinonia means. So what I want us to do, I want us to look at other places, other scriptures in the New Testament where this Greek word koinonia is used. So we can get a really good grasp on what fellowship means. So I have uh, three or four passages we're going to look at, and the word koinonia is actually in them. Here's the first one. It says that we are sharers in each other's suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 3 through 7, and I'll show you where the koinonia word is when we get to it as I'm reading. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. I love this concept. It says, if I go through a struggle and God helps me through it and my friends help me through it, my Christian brothers and sisters walk through it with me, I can then take the comfort I have received from that the encouragement. I can take what I've learned from going through that struggle and help someone else who is going through that same struggle. By the way, that's koinonia. And here it comes, coming up. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And here it comes. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. And that word share that gets translated share in your Bible is actually the word koinonia. So I'm going to read it with that word. Our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you have koinonia in your sufferings, so also we ha you have koinonia in comfort. So if you have koinonia when you're suffering, you're going to have koinonia when you're comforted. It's all about sharing each other's burdens in relationship. I'll show you another one. Uh, 2 Peter 1, 3-4 talks about us being sharers in God's divine nature, and it uses the word koinonia. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. In verse 4, it says that you may participate in the divine nature. I'm going to read it with the original Greek word, so that you may have koinonia in the divine nature. 
That means you share in God's divine nature. You have relationship with God. You don't just have knowledge about God, that you know who he is, and you understand Jesus died on the cross, and you could explain the whole story of the good news of how Jesus saves us with your head. But this says it goes farther than that. It's about having koinonia with God. That is staggering, if you think about it. That we, by his grace, not by our goodness or doing, by his grace, we can have koinonia with God. We can have this participation, this sharing with God and his divine nature. It's a relationship. It's a coming together. It's a being united. It's a partnering. It's a caring. I was going to say carrying each other's burdens. Anyone helping God carrying his his burden? Okay. He helps us carry our burdens. We have fellowship with him. 1 John says something similar. 1 John 1.3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I probably could have taken just this verse and explained koinonia, because it says two, two very important things. It says, Paul is, um, John is saying here that you will have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. So we have koinonia in both directions. Koinonia isn't just about they devoted themselves to the fellowship. It isn't just about us committing to each other. It's also about our koinonia with God. So koinonia goes this way, and it goes this way. We have relationship this way and this way. And we need both. We need both. Don't for a minute think that all you need is koinonia with God and you'll be all set. You weren't designed that way. You weren't created that way. If you live that way, you're working against the design God has built into you. And we can struggle along. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can say, I can make this work, but it was not meant to be that way. You were meant to have koinonia with God. And thank God through Jesus on the cross, he restored that in us. But you were also meant to have koinonia together with each other. With each other. Let this thought settle in. That's your design. Have you ever tried to use something not the way it was designed? Like, have you ever picked up a tennis racket to swat a fly? It's very difficult to do, and you probably will break a lamp. Don't ask me how I know that. (laughs) If you use something the way it's designed, it works right. We are designed to be in koinonia. We're designed to be committed to each other in this fellowship. There's also a bad koinonia. There's one we're supposed to avoid. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says this. I'll give you a little bit of background because I didn't put the whole passage in. Paul is writing to the Corinthians here, and he's referring to the history of Israel. And if you know the story of God's people in the Old Testament, it went up and down, up and down. Things were going great. They were worshiping God. They were living the way God wanted them to, and everything was going good, and they have God's blessing. And then everything was so good, they started to think like, well, we don't really need God. And they wandered away from God. You know what happened? Things got bad. Things got worse. Things got terrible. And God let them wallow in that until they realized, huh, maybe we should turn back to God. So they turned back to God. They repented. They committed. They walked with him, they worshiped him, and things were good, and they had God's favor, and they had God's blessing, and things got good, and then they got lazy, and they thought maybe we didn't. It was a pattern, right, all through the Old Testament. They had a king who followed God, 
and everything was good. They had a king who was wicked, and everything was bad, and they had a king who followed. It was just this pattern. And part of that, not that we're like that, but part of the, um, this pattern was when the people of God were in this place where they had walked away from God, they started worshiping false gods. It was a big problem in the Old Testament. They would worship false gods, false idols. They would make sacrifices to these false gods. And that's what Paul is referring to here in 1 Corinthians 10. I just put down verse 14, 18, and 21. You can read the whole thing at home if you want later. Uh, Paul writes in verse 14, My dear friends, flee from idolatry. Consider the people of Israel. He's hearkening them back to this history I just gave you quickly. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have koinonia. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. The word koinonia is used twice there. In verse 18 it says, Do not those who eat the sacrifices have koinonia at the altar? Aren't they actually, if they bring a sacrifice to a false god, aren't they actually entering into a relationship with that god? Aren't they sharing? Aren't they participating? Aren't they experiencing koinonia with the wrong god instead of the right god? You can't drink the cup of the Lord, Paul writes here, and the cup of demons too. You cannot have koinonia with God and at the same time, Break your koinonia with God and establish it somewhere else. You just can't do both. So what we want, we want koinonia this way, with the one true God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in that grace and in the family he's given us, we want to have koinonia with each other. This sharing, this being involved in each other's lives. There are two forms of the word that get used in the New Testament. Uh, koinonos is the male um, this is not a gender thing, it's a, a parts of speech thing, so maybe I shouldn't say male and female. Let me back up. Erase that part of the tape. Uh, uh, koinonos is the Greek form that refers to our identity, where it would say, I am a sharer in the divine nature. Um, koinonia, the word we find in our Acts chapter 2 passage, is relational. It is, we are sharers. We share. It's a different form of the, the word. The ones I've shown you, the passages we've read today, are koinonia. They're all about our relationship. They're all about our interactions together. So let me tell you a couple stories from, uh, from my memory and things I know about, of, about the power of fellowship and how it works. And the first one I want to tell you is it's fellowship over the long haul. And to start the story, and I'm going to have to keep it a brief story because it's a long one, I've got to go back to the early 1990s. So Heidi and I were younger then, we had young kids, and we were at the point where we were forming the core group to plant our church, which became Crossroads Church here in Trumbull for many years. It was just, you know, we were praying and forming the group, and we were at the beginning stages of it. At the same time, my younger brother, who was living in California, he was a policeman out there, he and his wife wanted to come back to this area, and he took a job in Stratford. He became a Stratford policeman. He had to move out this way, and we said to him, Move out, you took the job, move out, move in with us, we have room for you. Live with us till you get yourself established. So they, what they were moving into was this context where we were trying to start this church, and a lot of it was happening in our house. So my, my sister-in-law said, we'll move in with you. I just want you to know we're not becoming Christians. And we said, okay, you move in with us, no pressure there. What happened was, 
uh, they had a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and she got pregnant with twins. And um, they were living with us. We had this core group of people around and uh, coming in and out of our lives. And uh, it was a difficult pregnancy, and she had two little kids. And this group, this small group of, of 10 or 12 or 14 people, whatever it was, came around them. They came around them and helped. They served. They supported. They cared for. It touched them so much. This fellowship, they were experiencing fellowship. People that they didn't really know who said, we will step into your life and share your burden. We will help carry it. We'll love you. We'll help take care of your kids. We'll help you through this speed bump in your life. I think it touched them so deeply. They started coming to our church. We never pressured them to. But they started coming to church along the way. Each of them gave their lives to Christ and their kids along the way. They joined fellowship groups. They came to church. You know, they showed up. But they also joined a community group, a small group of people that they started to do life together with. They built lifelong friendships. They're still friends after all these years because they got involved in each other's lives as they grew in Christ. So fast forward to where we are today. Uh, they're living in North Carolina now, and they came up a couple weeks ago for a, uh, a wedding in the area, and they stayed with us for a couple of days. We had, in between them catching up with other people, we had wonderful times at our dining room table, hours just talking about life and faith and Jesus and church. And I, I was so thrilled because they are solid, mature believers serving in their church, loving Jesus, and, and we were having great conversations about it. I, you know, I go back, um, I can't do the math, to the 1990s and say, over time, what a remarkable change. When they moved to North Carolina, one of their top priorities was finding a church that they could connect with and people they could know and a place they could serve. What changed that? A lot of factors. But what really impacted that journey, I believe, was fellowship, was koinonia. The initial koinonia that touched them so deeply and the koinonia they established and remained in over all of these years. Now, that's a story for the long haul. That's the power of fellowship over many, many, many years. And you might be listening to it thinking, well, nice story, Rich, but I can't get my mind around that. I can't do think fellowship for 30 years. So let me give you a simple one, one you could actually do today if you wanted to, to promote Koinonia, promote fellowship. And I, I didn't warn her, but I'm going to call out my mother-in-law for a moment. This is my mother-in-law, Natalie, right here next to my wife. <laughs> uh, Natalie has done an amazing thing in the lives of people over the years. She has written notes. Remember notes? You take a pen and a card. She would go, every, every Sunday after church, she would go home and in the afternoon take out her pack of cards. And she would write notes. I don't know how many every afternoon, 10, 20, 30 every Sunday? More? Oh, okay. Two or three. Let's keep this really simple. (laughs) Two or three notes every Sunday. That's manageable, right? A note, two notes. She would write a note of encouragement to someone. She would write an appreciation if she saw someone serving in the church. Thanks for what you did today. She would write if she knew someone was struggling or suffering. I know life is hard for you right now. I'm praying for you. Add a scripture, sign her name, mail it off. I cannot tell you how many times I walked into the kitchen of one of my church members and saw her card on the refrigerator. I can't tell you how many times Heidi and I have had someone say to us, 
Your mother-in-law wrote me a note just when I needed it. It said exactly what I needed to hear. How did she pick that scripture that spoke right to my life? I still have the note. My good friend, one day, he opened the top drawer of his desk, and he says, you know what this is filled with? Notes from your mother-in-law. He has saved them all. That's koinonia. You might think, oh, what what would a little note do? Here's what it does. You get a note from somebody, now all of a sudden you're a person that matters. Someone thought about me. Someone cared about me. Someone knew my struggle. Or someone appreciated what I did, and they took the time to tell me. It makes me feel like I belong. It makes me feel like I matter to somebody. Because in koinonia, I want to matter to Jesus, and I know I do. But I also need to know I matter to someone else. I need to know there's a place where people care for me, and they notice when I'm missing, and they build into my life, and they, they encourage and support me, and I can do that back. Now, maybe it's just me, but I need to know that I matter to you or to someone in the context of Jesus' family. I need to know that I'm not just floating along out there alone. And if I haven't convinced you yet, That fellowship koinonia is a good idea. I'll just throw this last fact out. It's so interesting. Um, Have you heard of the blue zone? Uh, The blue zone is a term we have given areas in the world where people live longer than the average. So people live like 90, 95, 100 years, and, and groups of them. So this is fascinating to people, and they've started studying it. Why do these groups of people live longer than everyone else in the world? Why do they have longer lifespans? And they've attributed it to the climate where they live, diet, uh, they walk instead of driving their car, they get down on the floor and play with kids, they have um, connections with intergenerations within their family, all of these factors that these blue zones have in common. Here's one. Heidi was reading an article a couple weeks ago, and she shared this with me. Um, In this one study, a study of 263 centurions, people who have lived 100 years or more, 263 of them, 258, all but five, belong to a faith-based community. That was one of the factors in why they lived longer. This study said that if you belong to a faith-based community, it can add four to 14 years to your life. So if for no other reason you have koinonia, so that you can live longer. (laughs) All right, I've told you everything I know about koinonia. I've shared scriptures. My point was to try to give us a good understanding of what koinonia is, what the Bible says about it, and how that works in a church community. So that was just like a knowledge-based brain dump scripture. Here's what koinonia is. Now we need to talk. I'm just going to take a few minutes and chat with you about koinonia here at Calvary. Uh, Probably many or most of you are aware that uh, sometime in the recent past, Calvary contracted with a group called Vital Church to do a church-wide all-encompassing survey assessment of what's the, the heartbeat, the temperature, the health of Calvary Church. And they, they generated a 150-plus page report with a ton of information in it, also very useful. I've read the entire thing. I've got notes and circles, and so have many of the leaders here. Uh, they generated, as part of it, a list of recommendations, I think about 10, maybe 10 recommendations, of uh, things that they say, here are things to pay attention to at Calvary. Recommendation number eight from this survey is this one. We have that. It says, recommendation number eight from Vital Church to Calvary family. Make koinonia, the sense of family inclusion, available to everyone, including online attenders. 
And then they made this uh, clarif clarifying comment after the recommendation. Make providing koinonia to all an intentional goal. Become an inclusive church where new people quickly feel like they belong. Practice making new friends and um, making people feel like part of the church family. That was recommendation number eight. It says there to be intentional, to make koinonia an intentional goal, call to become an inclusive church. And I, we might be thinking at Calvary, we're an inclusive church. You're welcome here. But what the survey showed is not as well as we should be doing. Not as well. This talks about making sure this is a place where people feel accepted and people belong, where people feel cared for and where they matter. To not just, not just for people who have been around a long time, but for people who are here more recently or newer. All right, we could take that slide down for a minute and I'll explain a little bit about that. The normal course of event, the normal trajectory of a church like Calvary, this size and this age, looks a little bit like this. People who have been here a long time have already established their connections. They have relationships. They've been here a long time. They've had the conversations. They've been involved in other people's lives. That group of people would say, Koinonia is fine here. I have friendships. I feel connected. When I come, I recognize Joe. I talk to Sue. We have relationship. That group of people feels Koinonia. But there's another group in the church that says, I don't feel Koinonia. I love the church. I come here because I love the church, but I'm not connected to anyone. I don't feel connected to anyone. No one's reached out to connect to me. That's a concern. That's a big concern in the church. That's why Vital Church made that recommendation number eight. Honestly, if I were writing that report, folks, I would have made that number one. I believe this is a number one priority, critical issue for us to be intentional about here at Calvary. The church was not meant to be a seminary classroom where we're devoted to teaching only. It was meant to be a fellowship, a koinonia, where we're devoted also to each other, where we know what's going on in each other's lives, where we can meet each other's needs, share each other's burdens, be relationally connected. Koinonia is the glue that sticks churches together. If you lose koinonia, you lose the glue. And people don't stick. This, I started by saying koinonia is a non-negotiable. We have to, have to be intentional about connecting with each other. That's why I would, I'd make it the number one recommendation. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, oh, I, I don't see any issue with koinonia. I feel connected. What I want you to think about, if that's you, is there are people here who don't feel connected. They love the church, but they do not feel relationally connected. We've got to pay attention to that. And uh, if you're here and you're not feeling relationally connected, I'm in a moment going to challenge you too to think about that and what's your role in that and what can you do about it. But let me show you a chart from, uh, from the, uh, the Vital Church report. And uh, I just um, did a screenshot. I took it off the report. You're gonna, I, I, my, my point this morning is not to unpack this whole 150-page um, vital assessment. You, I'm sure that's coming. The leaders have been working on that. I just want to show you a snapshot of what you guys said about Koinonia here. Do we have that one? The first, first slide? Yeah. Um, I'm gonna, I can see it back there, but I want to see it here. Um, this question asks, what keeps you coming? 
to Calvary. And this breakdown is different age groups, like Boomer here, that's me. I would have been in this area. Uh, silent, that's the people who are a little bit older than me. Um, Xer, people a little bit younger than me. It's broken down by age groups. Again, I'm not going to uh, um, explain all of the. Here's what I wanted to show you, this part that's circled. Overall, our overall answer to what keeps you coming to Calvary Church is Bible study and sermons. 63% said, I come for the Bible studies and the sermons. Relationships, 18%. When I see that, it tells me something. So listen, folks, I'm going to be totally straight with you here. Last week, I commended us all. When I said devoted to teaching, were you here? Do you remember what I said? I said, the reason teaching is such a blessing and a pleasure here is how you receive it. I could absolutely say Calvary Church is devoted to the teaching, devoted to Scripture, devoted to learning more Scripture, and that's good. And I tried to push us to also say, and obedience to that Scripture. It's not just learning, it's doing it. And that's reflected here, isn't it? Isn't that what this says? I commended you last week. I can't commend us this week. I have to offer a course correction instead and say, this has to change. This koinonia coming in at 18% of our, our attention is too low. And a church that stays in this place will stagnate. We won't stick together. We won't have that sense of awe that that first group had. We'll survive. We'll move on into the future. But we're going to do it without being stuck together. Or we're going to do it with a, a portion of, the, of us here not feeling stuck together. I said it a few minutes ago. Church was meant to be more than a seminary class. It's meant to be a fellowship, a koinonia. Let me show you one more slide. I grabbed two screenshots from it. What do you value most? That was in the same category of questions, same breakdown of age groups. What do you value most? Being spiritually fed, 66%. Finding a sense of family and fellowship, 22%. I think what's reflected in this, why, we've, why this came out as a low value, is because the, what I said before, the people who have been around here a long time fought, feel a sense of family and don't feel like that's a great need. I have it. But what this is saying is there are a lot of people here who don't have it. And so they're just saying, hey, it's not that important here to have a sense of family. That has to change. I'm just going to be straight with you. That has to change. We were meant to be in koinonia with God and we were meant, we were designed, we were created. This church has to be in koinonia with each other. And we do okay. I know this is coming out like a hard reprimand. I want to apologize, but I mean it. This has to change. This has to be part of our attention. So where do we go with this? Leadership is working on it. You'll be hearing about it, I'm sure. About Leadership is going to put structures and strategies and, and, um, and efforts in place to help Promote koinonia. That's going to happen. But the real change never comes from structures and strategies and plans. Where does real change come from? It comes from us. It comes when I decide I'm going to do something about koinonia. If you decide you're going to do something about koinonia, it will start to change. If we put a program in place, it might change, it might not. We're going to do those things because we have to, but the real change will come when you say, okay, this is important, and I'm going to stretch myself. Here are a few ways you can do it. When you go to adult Bible study later, and if you're not going, go. There's step one. 
when you go, don't just go there to learn new information. Learn new information, that's a good thing. But talk to the person sitting next to you. Hi, I don't know you. How long have you been at Calvary? 40 years? Oh, I've been here six months. Nice to meet you. I know we're afraid to do that because you think you're supposed to know everybody and you're afraid that you're going to say hi to someone you've already met. I do that all the time. <laughs> just say hi. Oh, sorry. Have we met? You look familiar to me. That's a good one. I do. You probably heard me say that to you. Do I know you? What do you do? Where do you live? You have family in the area? How'd you come to Calvary? There's so many easy questions to strike up a conversation. Uh, come to a church event this Saturday, uh, right, uh, right here at the church. There's a, a, a parenting seminar for those of you who are raising children to come and learn some great biblical truths about how to raise children. Come to it, but don't just come to get that information. Come to meet someone. You have kids, I have kids. Hey, we should have coffee sometime and talk about how challenging our kids are. That's koinonia. You have to make that second step. Um, here's a test for you. When in a few minutes the worship team sings our final song and you get up to leave, who are you going to talk to? Who do you? Probably someone you already know, right? When uh, Amy said earlier, stand up and greet somebody, we do that every week. Who do you talk to? This is your litmus test. This is how you evaluate yourself. Who do I talk to? I talk to the people I already know. Do I move around the room and try to find someone I've never met before? Which I understand is threatening. It's hard. But change is hard. I'm challenging you, encouraging you, correcting you to make this a, a purposeful change. To say, okay, I'm going to do what Rich said. I'm going to try to find someone I've never met before and say, hi, I'm Rich. We've never met before. And if you're awkward, just say, I'm doing this because Rich said I was supposed to. <laughs> That's where change will begin. That's where it really happened. And then you got to push it a little bit farther. you got to meet out at Starbucks for coffee. Or you invite someone into your home. Hey, why don't you and your, your wife come over for dinner? Meet me and my wife. We'll, we'll have some simple food and we'll talk around the table. That's where koinonia begins. That's where change happens. But it only happens if we as individuals decide we're going to make that change. All right. Uh, it's much more fun for me to bring a word of commendation last week to say you guys are wonderfully devoted to the teaching. It's a little bit less fun to say, hey, this is an area we have to do better at, but it's the truth. Vital Church said it. I think, I think we know it. Uh, now it's time to say, okay, let's start. Let's not wait for the elders to come out with their report. Let's start changing this now. So I'm going to call the worship team up. And as they're coming up and getting into place, I'm going to ask you to sit with your eyes closed and process what I said and just say, what can I do? Here's the prayer. What can I do, Lord? What simple step, what can I do next to help promote koinonia here at this church I love so much? To help somebody feel included who doesn't feel included. To help connect somebody I, with somebody I don't. What can I do, Lord? And it's okay to pray this. God, give me the courage because it terrifies me to take that step. You pray that now. I'll close us with a prayer and then we'll have our final song. Lord Jesus, we know you love us and we love you. And we love each other. We really do. And we want to have really great koinonia here. 
So God, I pray that you forgive us if we've gotten lazy about it, or if we haven't paid enough attention to it, or if we have settled in, or if we've been waiting around for someone to come greet us. Give us the courage to, to reach out and say, hey, uh, this is me, let's, let's talk, or just to make that connection, or to take that step, or to show up for a class, or uh, to introduce ourselves to someone we don't know, to get that process going again, to kickstart it. Lead us, Lord, and give us courage so that uh, Calvary can uh, one day really soon be described as a church that has koinonia at the top of its list, up there with devoted to teaching. We ask for your grace in this and your strength and your leading. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we have koinonia with each other. We have koinonia with the Lord. And that's what we're going to celebrate right now, right?